All right. Good morning, guys. No, oh, let's try that again. Good morning, guys. Good morning. <laughs> Thanks, Terry. <laughs> Wasn't looking for volume as much as participation, but I do appreciate the... You, you did well, my friend. You did well. All right. Um, we are continuing our study this morning in the book of Proverbs, specifically in Proverbs chapter 3. So grab your Bible and open up to Proverbs chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, grab one off the floor around you and, uh, and use that. Okay, if you're using one of our Bibles, it's page 528. And uh, if you don't own a Bible and you're a guest with us, um, please take that Bible that you've just grabbed as our gift to you and, um, and read it. We would love for you to engage the scripture over the course of the week and to continue to dig into the things that we study here on Sunday mornings so that it can be a blessing to you. All right, Proverbs chapter 3. Again, we're going to read verses 1 through 12. This morning we'll be focusing on verses 9 and 10, but let's go ahead and begin in verse 1. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. The word of the Lord. All right, we are in our third week uh, of sitting in Proverbs 3, this little mini-series. And, and in Proverbs 3, what we have is Solomon um, saying to his son, uh, I want you to be wise, right? This is a dad, in a sense, pleading with his son, saying, look, there are some things that, that I want you to, to know. There are, there are some paths I want you to walk because I want you to be blessed, right? What parent hasn't yearned? that they could help their children make wise decisions, right? That they would walk a path that would ultimately lead them to blessing, right? And and, and there's nothing more powerless as a parent than knowing that ultimately your child is going to grow into autonomy and make their own decisions. That's incredibly scary because you know the decisions you made and you don't want them making the same ones, right? So Solomon here is is, is in a sense trying to uh, plead with his son for wisdom, now, what's interesting is that he's, he's telling his son, look, wisdom is not just about discernment. It's about your affections. Wisdom isn't about what you know as much as it's about what you love. And the poetry in this chapter is laid out in such a way that, that he is exploring our covenant or his son's covenant relationship with God. And, and so he, he begins by saying, look, here's your covenant behavior. Here's, here's where you need to line yourself up with, with the covenant that God has made with you and you've entered into with God. And here's the covenant blessing that flows from that. So it goes covenant behavior, covenant blessing. In week one, we kind of laid the foundation in the first couple of verses because we looked at kind of those foundational thoughts that Solomon unpacked. 
Basically, he was looking at his son and saying, hey, hey, do you want to walk in the full blessing of God, right? Verse 2, do you want length of days, years of life, and peace, right? Verse 4, do you, do you want to find favor and good success in the sight of God and man? If so, do not let steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. And we unpacked that and talked about how those are terms that were loaded because those are the terms that God used to describe himself when he first revealed himself. When he said, my name is, right, Yahweh, Yahweh, a a God rich in steadfast love and faithfulness. And what, what Solomon is saying is sit in God's love to the point that you come to love God. Sit in God's love to the point that it actually starts breaking your heart right? Of your, of your self-focus and self-obsession and self-love. Let God's love come in to the point that it actually starts to free you and change you. Sit in God's love, right? And we see this principle really of God being a stead, God of steadfast love and faithfulness fleshed out as literally, as we continue to see the story of God unfold, right? We get to the New Testament and we see God become man, the ultimate example, the ultimate display of a God of steadfast love being faithful to a mankind who rebelled against him, right? He, he lived a perfect life. He, he died a death he didn't deserve to die, and he, and he rose again a new life. Why did he do it? Well, he did it so that he could be our substitute in judgment and our partner in resurrection, so that, so that he, could, he could ultimately pay the price we couldn't pay for ourselves and invite us into a blessing we could never earn on our own, right? He is acting in steadfast love and faithfulness, even though we didn't deserve it. That's called grace. And ultimately, there's a, a call to covenant relationship with God through Jesus, right? God is saying, look, you have rebelled against me. You have walked away from me. Believe in Jesus, Trust in the finished work of Christ, that that he was your substitute and your savior. He died for you. He took your guilt, your shame, paid the full price, and rose again to give you a new record, an alien righteousness, one that isn't your own, but is a gift from God, right? And you come to believe in Christ, and it allows you to enter back into relationship with God, not based on your love for God, but based on God's love for you, right? And that allows us to, to, to ultimately sit in God's love, to enter into God's love. Because Jesus ultimately was saying, I am the ultimate display of God's love. And as you come to believe in me, you will come to love me. And as you come to love me, that love will free you, right? That led to week two. In week two, we talked about how this ultimately impacts the way we view life, every aspect of life, right? This is not just, hey, hey, we have our spiritual life, and then we got our work life, and then we got our family life, right? When you get this, man, this kind of love doesn't stay in a box. This kind of love doesn't stay contained to one day a week. This kind of love pervades your view of your entire life, and it affects every decision. And so in week two, we talked a little bit about how um, ultimately Solomon was, was calling his son, to the humility of being loved, right? There's something about grace that humbles us to receive love we don't deserve, that humbles us and frees us. We don't have to prove ourselves. We don't have to posture. We don't have to, right? When you, when you receive a love you don't deserve, there's something about that's incredibly freeing. And what he's saying is, look, that humbles you, but choose to be humble in response to it, right? Embrace the humility that comes from grace, right? Allow, acknowledge God as God, <laughs> Don't try to be God. Acknowledge God. Let God be God, and, and you walk the paths that God sets for you. Submit yourself to him and follow him as the giver of gifts and the one who blesses. 
So what we're doing is, as we see, is we're really moving from this, this really high-level view, right? The, the big concept, God loves you, so you should grow in your love for God. And, and then we're getting a little bit uh, narrower in the sense, okay, that should have an impact on the way you, you, you view life and make decisions. And, and this morning, we're getting even closer, right? So it's like really, really close because we're going to talk about your wallet. Okay, so it's like we're moving from the Google satellite view where you see the entire earth. We, the second week we zoom to the neighborhood view where you're like, okay, yeah, that's my neighborhood. That's where I live. And now we're zooming right into to wherever you keep your wallet. Okay, that, that's what's in view. Uh, and that's going to make some of you uncomfortable this morning. I have, a, I have a, a sneaking suspicion it might have made Solomon's son a little bit uncomfortable. Right? But here's the thing. Solomon knew where his son's wealth was his heart would follow. Wherever Solomon's son's wealth was, his heart would follow. And remember, wisdom has less to do with what you know and more to do with what you love. And so if he's going to talk about genuine wisdom, it makes sense that he would cut straight to this issue because he knew Solomon's heart would follow his wealth. And so he's going to talk about how wisdom plays out in our finances and in his. So let's see what Solomon is saying to his son specifically, okay? Um, and, and in these two verses, Solomon follows the same pattern we've seen in the previous verses of covenant behavior, covenant blessing, right? So what we see in the beginning is covenant behavior, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of your produce. And then we see the, the covenant blessing that is laid out as a result of that, right? Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Now, what Solomon is telling his son um, is really don't forget your obligations, okay? Don't forget your obligations. Because when Solomon talks about first fruits here, that isn't just a, a generic phrase. He is talking about a specific offering that took place in the Old Testament. It was one of the requirements of the Old Testament law. And Solomon's son, and in fact, any Jewish reader would have picked up on that immediately. It's foreign to us. And so uh, it's not as natural for us to understand that. Um, But for them, they would have recognized that this was in fact um, the first fruits offering that he was talking about. Now in the first fruits offering, what happened was the Jewish people would bring uh, the first of their harvest to the temple to to basically give it um, to God as an acknowledgement Um, so they would bring a grain offering. It was sometimes called a wave offering because they would bring the first, first sheath of grain. And, and, and there was a ceremony where the, the, the priest would wave the grain. Um, they would bring a sacrificial lamb. They would bring a drink offering. They would bring wine and Deuteronomy 29, um, describes the process of this offering. Now it's not familiar to us. So I just want to read this passage. I'm going to put it on the screen so that you can read along as I do. I'll explain a little bit as we go through, but I, I just want to give you a context of what we're talking about when we're talking about the first fruits offering. So this is in Deuteronomy. This is the law that helps lay out how they're supposed to do the first fruits offering. And you, that is um, a Jewish person who, who is under the law and obedience to it, shall go to the priest at the temple and say to him, I declare today to the Lord, your God, that I have come into the land that the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. Then the priest shall take the basket from your hand. What's in the basket? The food. <laughs> the first fruits, right? He, he literally would bring the first fruits of the, the offering. They will take the basket from your hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord your God. 
Now, exactly how much they brought at this offering isn't clear. Um, there were some rabbis that taught that it was supposed to be a 16th of the total. Um, there were other stipulations. It's not defined in, in the law itself. There were other offerings. Um, most often you hear about the tithe, which was a 10th, um, which also corresponded to this, but this wasn't exactly, uh, this, when we're talking about the first fruits, it isn't exactly the tithe. All right, and you shall make response before the Lord your God. So, so the person who brings the basket now is supposed to say this. It's like a liturgy, right? So, so the person who brought the basket is now supposed to say these very things. God's like, look, I'm not going to let you make this up. I'm going to tell you what to say because I don't want you to miss the meaning of why you're doing this. A wandering Armenian was my father. He's actually talking about um, uh, before um, Israel uh, uh, went to Egypt, right? And then he went down to Egypt and sojourned there. Few in number, and there he became a great nation, great, mighty, and populous. And the Egyptians treated us harshly and humiliated us and laid on us hard labor. Then we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great deeds of terror, with signs and wonders. You guys remember the 10 plagues and, and Pharaoh hardening his heart? Um, if not, go watch Charlton Heston. He'll remind you. Um, and he brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Now talking about the promised land, Canaan. And behold, now I bring the first of the fruit of the ground. That's where the phrase first fruits offering comes from. I now bring the first of the fruit of the ground, which you, O Lord, have given me. And you shall set it down before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. And you shall rejoice in all the good that the Lord your God has given you and to your house, you and the Levite and the sojourner who is among you. All right. What does any of this have to do with your harvest? Right? I mean, if it's a first fruits offering, shouldn't it be something along the lines of, thank you for a great harvest? Thank you for the fruitfulness of the soil. There's, no, there's nothing about that. It's about this whole Egypt thing. And man, we used to be a nation that was, that was in, in slavery and despised, but God came and delivered us and, and took us out of that land and brought us into Canaan, right? What, what's happening here is this whole thing is a reminder. It's a reminder to, to the Jewish people that the food that you hold in your hand didn't come from your effort to till the soil or to reap the produce. It came from a long history of God's blessing that goes well far, you know, it's way farther back than just this season of fruitfulness. The blessing that you are holding in your hand is part of a greater blessing. God delivered you out of Egypt and gave you an inheritance you didn't earn. You came to a promised land, a land that you didn't earn and you didn't claim. You came to a fruitful soil that was, that was given to you as a gift. And now that you have it, all the blessing that comes from it still comes from God. The offering you bring isn't some great sacrifice that you're making for God. This offering isn't about your generosity. This sacrifice isn't about you. It's not about you at all. It is a response of gratitude that the blessing that you hold in your hand is part of a whole history of blessing. 
a pattern of God's steadfast love and faithfulness to you. And that the reason you have blessings today is because there is a pattern of blessing in which God has blessed you. So there's a sense in which this helps realign the Jewish person's thinking, right? Because maybe they're having a rough harvest. Maybe it didn't come in as full as they wanted. Maybe, maybe they had a, a disappointment in the season, whatever. What this does is it comes and instead of focusing on the harvest itself, it refocuses them on the pattern of God's blessing that led to that harvest. It reminds them that they have a God of steadfast love and faithfulness. There is a God who is for them who has delivered them and is giving them a future. Now, what's interesting is that Solomon says, um, don't just bring your first fruits. Solomon says to his son, honor the Lord with your wealth. It's an interesting way to begin, honor the Lord. What does it mean to honor? Well, he's calling his son to something much deeper than just obedience. He's calling him to an obedience driven by the right motives. Don't just go through the motions. Don't just obey the law. Don't just do the right thing. Honor the Lord. Honor the Lord. Make sure that you are putting a weightiness to this, right? The word honor literally means heavy. Put a weightiness to this thing. Don't take it lightly. Don't just go through the motions, right? Allow the weightiness of it to settle in on you. Right? This just reminds us of, of what we've already been talking about. As you, as you allow the steadfast nut, love and faithfulness of God to weigh on you and shape you, the weightiness of it changes you. This offering is a means of grace. God is reminding his people that he is a God of steadfast love and faithfulness. And it should be done as you bring the offering in humility and reverence and gratitude. See, the covenant behavior that, that he's laying out is, is, is a heart attitude that leads to an action, right? Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the f- first fruits of your pro- uh, produce. And, and that leads to a covenant blessing, right? The last part of the verse. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. All right, so Solomon is making a pretty clear assertion to his son. Um, it's metaphorical in nature. Uh, we know that because we don't have any accounts of anybody actually having vats bursting with wine. Didn't happen, right? Uh, we, we, we understand that that's metaphorical. What he's saying is, is ultimately as you honor God for the blessing he has given you, you will experience greater blessing. As you allow the weightiness of God's history of blessing on you to shape you and you move in generosity to that, you will experience um, that blessing to a greater degree. Now, while this is metaphorical, it is not purely symbolic. Um, they aren't bringing a metaphorical grain offering to the temple, are they? They're actually bringing literal grain to the temple. And so there is a sense in which what Solomon is promising is, in fact, increased material wealth. There is a sense in which the blessing is not purely um, metaphorical, but, but is um, physical as well. God, God isn't saying, bring me real grain and I'll bless you with metaphorical grain. He, he's saying, I, I will bless you with the real thing. As you bring the real thing, I'll, I'll bless you with the real thing. Honor God with your wealth. And you can trust God to do what doesn't make sense. Right? Think about that. I mean, ultimately, when, when you bring the first fruit offering 
to the temple, you are diminishing your wealth. You are making the first choice of the harvest to diminish what you have and to bring it to, to the temple. And, and what, what the promise is or what the principle here in, in the covenant is, is as you do that, as you decrease your yield by giving the first portion away, God will multiply what you have left. You won't lack. So you don't have to be afraid. All right, so we've unpacked the covenant behavior um, described in these two verses and and the the covenant blessing that Solomon's son uh, can expect to experience. Um, Now we need to take a little bit of time and talk about how it does and how it does not apply to us. Um, This gets a little bit tricky, and uh, it's worth unpacking because I think there is a lot of confusion. Here's the thing. There is a sense in which uh, these two verses both apply and don't apply to us. So I want to be very careful. First of all, as New Testament believers, we are not under obligation to the first fruit laws any more than we are to any of the other ceremonial laws of the Old Testament. We're not under obligation to bring sacrifices to the temple. We are not under obligation to to do any of these things. The first fruit uh, law is part of a ceremonial law that was fulfilled in Jesus, right? Those codes have no authority over us because we don't approach God through the Mosaic covenant, the Old Testament law. If you think about it, the Mosaic covenant began... Um, when Moses stood as a mediator between God and the nation of Israel. And God said to the nation of Israel, hey, would you like to be my peculiar people? And they're like, yes. And he said, all right, then obey these laws. Are you cool with that? And they're like, yes. And he said, cool. If you obey, you get a blessing. If you disobey, you get a curse. And they're like, yes. And then they disobeyed. <laughs> they never earned the blessing, right? The, the covenant remained continually unfulfilled. Why? Because they could never fulfill it. Until there was a Jewish man born who did perfectly fulfill the law. Jesus was the first human to perfectly fulfill, the first Jewish man to perfectly fulfill the Mosaic Covenant, to actually obey it and earn its blessing. And then he died under its curse. Not for himself, but for his his people to basically say, look, you couldn't earn it. But that's why I came, to be your substitute, to pay the price. See, the whole Mosaic law becomes this metaphorical piece of the story in which God is showing us you can't do it on your own. You can't save yourself. You can't measure up. So Jesus will do it for you. Trust in your Savior. Rest in your substitute. And when Jesus fulfilled the law, it became a covenant fulfilled. Because if you, you paid off your house... Right? That mortgage deed would continue to be a historical document of worth and value, but with no authority. Right? If you pay off your house, are you under? can that covenant be used against you in any way? Can it be held over your head? No, because it's no longer in force. It has been fulfilled. Jesus came and fulfilled the requirements of the law. And as a result... When we study the Old Testament, it is enlightening, it is good, it is right. And in fact, the moral law that we see revealed in the Old Testament is in fact part of the fabric of nature. So in a sense, it's still binding, not in the sense that we have to obey it to please God, but we recognize that that's the way God has wired us and the universe. And in walking in the blessing of God, we need to align ourselves with that wiring. 
But we are not under the ceremonial law to obey it, to earn God's blessing. And if we disobey it, we don't miss out on his blessing. I know some of you are like, now wait a minute, Steve. That's, I don't think that's what I've been taught. I've been taught that, that the first fruits offering actually directly applies to us. And I, and I know some of you have. I've had these conversations. Um, in fact, in, in some circles, it's very common to teach, not just that you still have to give a first fruits offering, but, but they'll even teach it in the sense that, man, if you don't give your first fruits offering, you're not going to get the blessing of God. Do you want God's blessing on your life? You better give. You better give your first fruits offering. And it becomes this, this um, in some circles, uh, this magic wand and God becomes the pinata, right? If you give, somehow God in response must give in return, right? This becomes a mechanical process. Instead of a covenant of love, it becomes a mechanical process in which people motivated by self-interest say, I will give more to get more, right? And there are teachers that manipulate that kind of spiritual greed, sanctify it through spiritual sounding language, and what you end up with is a bunch of people trying to smack God to get the goodies that fall out. I'll give more so I get more. I'll give more so that I am enriched. And often when they teach this, they, they combine it with the Old Testament teaching of the tithe. The word tithe means a tenth. And what they say is, all right, if you're going to bring your first fruits to God, that means you have to give 10% of your income to God. And since it's the first fruits, that means you have to give it off of the gross and not the net because God's more important than the government. Right? You don't give the first fruits to the government. You give the first fruits to God. Does this sound familiar to anybody? You guys ever hear this kind of teaching? And so what that means is you have to give 10%, and it has to come off your gross income, and it has to go to your local church, or you're going to miss out on the blessing of God. And if you want a greater blessing, give more. In fact, some of the teachers go so wild that, that they, they start bringing in Jesus' teaching in the New Testament about, oh, you know, the, some grain it gives tenfold, some fiftyfold, some a hundredfold. What kind of faith do you have? Do you have tenfold faith? Fiftyfold faith? Hundredfold faith? Give more and get more. You guys, it's ludicrous, right? Um, there's a movie coming out. Um, <laughs> straight out of Compton. There's been a bunch of memes floating around. One of my favorites, straight out of context. Um, yeah, for real. I mean, that's what ends up happening is people pluck these verses out of their context, out of their historical context, out of their biblical context, and they start applying them willy-nilly to this system of thinking. You guys, it is, it is unbiblical. And it's not true. There are so many problems with this kind of teaching. I can't address them all. But I want you to just think about this. It doesn't make any sense. Not only is, is that part of a covenant fulfilled, we no longer approach God through the Mosaic Code. We no longer approach God through, through the ceremonial um, codes of, of the Old Testament. It, it, it honestly doesn't make any sense, right? What did the Jewish people bring to the temple in their first fruits offering? Food. And people are like, well, that was their wealth. It was part of their wealth, no doubt. But they had money. <laughs> Do a little archaeological study. They had money, right? If you were part of the diaspora, if you were a Jewish person living far away from Jerusalem during this period of time, you would take it, sell your first fruits, come to Jerusalem so you didn't have to transport it, and rebuy it, and then give the food to the temple. 
I don't know very many local churches that are looking for you to bring in your first ears of corn and tomatoes and, 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 and your peppers and I don't know what else you have in your little garden in the backyard. If you're a real farmer, maybe soybeans. You know, they brought food, okay? Why did they bring food? Because that food was actually used to feed the Levites, the fatherless, the widows, and the sojourners. People that didn't have the ability to produce food on, them, on their own. This was a way to create a safety net for the poor and the needy in the community. And they would gather this food and they would use it as, as a huge food bank to feed people who were hungry. There were collections of money in the Old Testament. There were times when, when there would be huge prayer meetings and people would bring their silver and their gold and they would bring offerings. Um, but those were special times and, and, and that wasn't part of, I, I just want to be biblical, it wasn't the tithe. In the Old Testament, the tithe and the first fruits weren't about money. And to translate that to the New Testament church and say this is how you earn blessing of God on your finances is irresponsible. And incorrect. We don't honor God by manipulating his word. There's absolutely nothing in the New Testament about believers having to give a tithe or a first fruits offering. It's just not there. It's just not there. The guide in the New Testament for giving, when Paul is speaking to the Corinthians and he's taking up an offering with them, basically what he says is, look, you need to pray to God and ask him how much you're supposed to give. And your giving should be liberal It should be joyful, and it should be regular. That's the guideline given. It should be liberal, in other words, sacrificial, probably hurt. (laughs) It should be regular uh, in the sense that he said, set it aside on the first day of the week. That's what he instructed them. And then he said it should be joyful. It should be given from a joyful heart. There's your guidelines, right? It's between you and God. Why? Because God owns your stuff, not you. The bottom line is you're stewards, not owners. Right? None of us have created our own wealth. None of us, have, we don't create anything. Right? You, when's the last time you spoke something into existence? Just kind of curious. Right? All you're doing is working with God, what God has already entrusted to you. You're, you're working in this history of God's outpouring of blessing, and you're working within that blessing to, to ultimately live a, a life of blessing yourself. Some of you are like, this is awesome. So what you're saying is I don't need to give money to the church. I don't have to give, not really, right? Not really. What I am saying is that we don't give out of obligation to the law. We don't give out of obligation to the first fruits offering. We don't give out of obligation to the tithe. We give because Christ, our first fruits, first gave to us. First fruits are mentioned in the New Testament, but they are not connected to our finances, they're connected to our spiritual welfare. They aren't connected to what we give God. They're connected to what God gave us. Take a look at this. This is 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 through 23. Paul is speaking to the Corinthians about resurrection. In fact, 1 Corinthians 15 is, is one of the cardinal passages in the New Testament where Paul is discussing the implications of, of Jesus' literal physical resurrection. And toward the end of it, he says this, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For in Adam, 
for as in Adam all die. So Adam rebelled against God. Adam, Adam brought sin into the world. And as a result, he died and, and all of his children have died, right? Adam introduced that into the world. So also in Christ shall all be made alive. Jesus brought in a new principle, right? He was the first man raised from the dead. Uh, and counteracting the, the, the sin of Adam. And those who believe in Christ are, are brought into Christ and taken out of that history of Adam, right? But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. So by calling Jesus the firstfruits, Jesus, uh, Paul is, is doing two things. He's saying that Jesus is the first of the harvest, right? There's more to come, <laughs> Right? Jesus was raised from the dead, but he's not the last one to be raised from the dead. He is raised in righteousness to be able to stand before God with a perfect record, but he is not the last. He's the first fruits of a rich harvest of those who believe in Christ, who are cleansed by his death, burial, and resurrection, and will stand in his righteousness and not their own. He is the first fruits of the resurrection. He is the blessing with more blessing to come. But the second thing that, that Paul is doing is, is he is, in a sense, saying that the first fruits of the Old Testament were a foreshadowing, right? That, that whole thing in the Old Testament about the first fruits was foreshadowing a more important development in the story. You guys, Israel was delivered from Egypt. And that foreshadowed how God would deliver his people from sin and death. Israel was brought into a a land of blessing, an inheritance that they did not earn. And that foreshadows how God brings his people into an inheritance that they don't earn. A land flowing with milk and honey, metaphorically speaking, of, of a new life in union with Christ. A new life in union with the love of God, not operating in alienation to it. God gave them a land flowing in milk and honey to foreshadow how he would give his people a greater inheritance in Christ. And when they brought their first fruits offering, it was a a provocation. What what it was doing is it was provoking the Israelites to honor God, to make them remember and and think back. Because just like us, they, they, they quickly forgot the blessings that came before. Just like us, they were, they were quick to forget the rich history of blessing they had with God, and they just focused on the struggles of the current day. And, and as they brought their first fruits offering, it, it, it anchored them into this history of blessing and reminded them they had a God of steadfast love and faithfulness. And as we look at the first fruits that we receive in Christ, it takes us out of our temporary, short-sighted, grumbling, um, whatever, and reminds us of this great history of blessing, that we have a God who has gone before us, who is, who is a God of steadfast love and faithfulness, who has done the work to bless us and has set, apart, set us apart for the greatest blessing to come. It reminds us that our greatest problem is already solved. Our greatest blessing has already been given. It gets us out of our myopic, short-sighted, self-absorbed perspective on life. And frees us to see that there is a greater story moving to a greater end with a greater inheritance. So in the same way, the first fruits provoked the Israelites to gratitude. When we consider and sit in the first fruits of Christ, it provokes our hearts to trust 
and gratitude in the same way it led them not to trust their ability to amass wealth, to amass food, to protect themselves um, from insecurity, but instead trust the God who blesses. As we consider the first fruits of Christ, it moves us to that same kind of reckless faith where we can say it doesn't necessarily make sense, but I abandon myself on the goodness of God. I will not look out for myself. I will not be number one. I will not fight for my own interests. I will fight to follow the God who fights for my interests. I will seek to follow Christ, the first fruits of this greater blessing, as I walk into the experience of this greater blessing. Here's the thing, you guys. For the Israelites, when they brought their first fruits offering, it was good for the Levites. They didn't have a land. They, 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 they inherited the, the temple, and so they needed food. And, and it was good for the fatherless and the widows because they were, they were vulnerable. And it was good for the sojourners, the people traveling through that had no ability to provide for themselves. It was, it was good for, for everyone that received the blessing of that giving, right? And it was good that they trusted God as they gave. But you need to understand that it wasn't just good for the people they gave to, it was good for them to give, In bringing their offering and giving, they were not just blessing others. They were being blessed because they were being changed. It was a very practical way for them to do what the beginning of this proverb says. They were sitting in the reality of God's steadfast love and faithfulness and then putting it into action. As they gave, they were provoking their hearts to faith in the God who gave first to them. It was good for those who received the gift And in some ways, it was better for those who gave. Jesus was not speaking metaphorically when he said it is more blessed to give than receive. He wasn't just speaking in broad general terms of, oh, that's a nice thought for a Hallmark card. He was unveiling a reality that is true in the kingdom of God that is true for us as followers of Christ, that there is something beautiful that happens in us when we give in response to having been given to. It's good for our hearts. You guys, this isn't a law that we need to obey, but it is a principle we need to honor. Not because there's some law that's going to punish us or because we're going to, you know, miss out, but because the God of steadfast love and faithfulness has blessed you. And you honor him as you give from that blessing. You honor him as you bless others with the blessing you've received. And you are blessed because as you give, you shape your heart to giving to experience more of God's blessing. Before the summer, we did a short series in Philemon and we unpacked a little diagram talking about how our experience of grace shapes our heart, right? It provokes within us a sense of, of, of gratitude, right? Something that's not normal to us, if we're honest. But as we receive and we realize how great of a gift we've received, it, it actually provokes within us that warmth and that adoration and that, that gratitude. And that gratitude then changes us and frees us to become more generous, And, and as, as we become more generous, it actually shapes our hearts, to experience more grace. It's not that we receive more blessings, it's that we experience more blessings. 
right? We don't receive more grace, but we, re- but we experience more grace because our hearts become more receptive to the experience of it. And we talked about how this played out relationally. We were talking about the book of Philemon, how, how there are difficult relationships and there are people we need to forgive and, and, and there, are, there are hard things that we go through. But as grace shapes us in gratitude for generosity, we become generous with people who don't deserve it. We become forgiving with people who can't pay us back. We release the debt of people that have wounded us And we are freed into this beautiful flow of grace and love. This chart's just as accurate as we talk about our finances. You guys, as we give, we express gratitude. That's one of the reasons we give. We give to to say thank you to the God who gave to us. But as we give, we actually shape our hearts for gratitude. You know, what you do with your money reveals what you value. If I really want to know what's important to you, all I have to do is look at your checkbook or your Excel spreadsheet. I know checkbooks are getting rather passe, right? We follow the path of your money, we'll find what you love. You know why? Because you give to what you love. If you think about what, what can make you to let money just flow out of your hand, let it rain, you know, whatever what is it that, that you just, oh, yeah, this was money that was important to me two minutes ago. It's not now. I want that, right? What, what is that? That's something you love, right? You give to what you love. So it's an expression of, of what is really important to you. But here's the thing. When you give, it, it is not only an expression of what's important to you. It shapes what's important to you. You realize that? As you give, it not only expresses what's important to you, it shapes it. So as you give to something that's unhealthy, you're actually reinforcing your heart's love for something that's unhealthy. As you give to something that is beautiful, even though in the moment you may not feel tremendously grateful, it actually increases your capacity to experience gratitude. Does that make sense? As we move forward in faith and giving, knowing that this is what honors God, it actually increases our joy in the giving. When we give, it is a celebration of gratitude to a God who has blessed us richly, and it is also an act of spiritual warfare on our sinful, selfish, fearful, prideful hearts. So who should give? Everyone. Yeah, but Steve, I don't have much money. Jesus praised the widow for giving a mite, the smallest coin. Don't ask me, right? Ask God, how much should I give? Not whether I should give, but how much should I give? Let God tell you, right? He will. How much should I give? And here's the thing. Here's what's going to happen as you open your heart to this. Because I've gone through this process. I've and I won't unpack my whole story, but, but there was a time when, when I was giving a ton of my time to the church. I wasn't giving a whole, a whole lot of my money, but the reality was I didn't have a whole lot of money to begin with. <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was fairly poor, and so I used that as a justification to say, yeah, maybe I give 2 or 4% of my income away, but I'm giving a lot of my time away, right? And, uh, and so I started wrestling with that. In the Old Testament, uh, they weren't required to give away 10%. The reality was they were required to give away closer to 30%. When you actually add up, added up all the tithes and all the offerings of the Old Testament, they had to give away about 30% of their income, right? 
in America, the average American gives away about 2%. If you give away 4%, you feel really, really generous. And yet we're one of the wealthiest people on the face of the earth. And so as I wrestle with that, Lauren and I wrestle with that, we're like, okay, maybe we should give more, right? And part of that, honestly, was a little impulse of my heart that says, I kind of have to do this. There's a reason I'm not doing it, and it's not a good one. There's something unhealthy in me that's actually blocking me from generosity. And so I actually need to become more sacrificial. I have to give. But what's interesting is that you go from, from I have to give through the process of giving, and eventually you get to this place where you say, I get to give. Something changes in your heart. As gratitude starts changing you and freeing you to generosity, pretty soon you go from, man, I have to do this to, man, I get to do this. And pretty soon you get to go from, I get to do this to how much can I do it? Like, like how much can I give? Lord, will you increase my capacity for generosity? That becomes your prayer. Not, Lord, will you increase my security? Will you increase my comfort? Will you increase my pleasure? It's will you increase the blessing I get to give to others because in the process, I get to be blessed. You realize that you can't outgive God. And as you're giving to honor God and in submission to God, that is important. Not giving to provoke God like he's a pinata to hit him to get him, but, but actually saying, Lord, how much would you have me give? What needs would you have me meet? you'll come to see that there is a treasure more valuable than your money. At the end of the day, you guys, if your barns are full and your vats are bursting with money and that's all, I feel sorry for you. There are treasures greater in life than money. I don't know if you figured that out yet, right? He who dies with the most toys dies sad. Maybe slightly entertained and distracted from his empty and despairing life, but sad. You want to know who dies rich? People who love and who are loved. The greatest richness in the human life is the experience of loving and being loved. I would not, and I've wrestled with this. I wondered, I thought about this as I was preparing this. I would not, I would not. There's not even a piece of me that would be tempted to trade places with somebody like Donald Trump. I don't have money. I got a family I love. I got a wife I cherish. I've got kids that love Jesus. I've got purpose in my life. I have direction. I have financial challenges. I have financial struggles every single month, right? We're a family of five. I have one car, right? I'm not complaining. That's the reality of it. I would not trade places. The wealth that God has given me, the barns of my life are full and my vats are overflowing. And I'm telling you guys, there is something incredibly beautiful about the way grace frees us to gratitude, that frees us to generosity, that gives us a deeper experience of grace. There's something way more valuable than your stuff. As you honor this principle, God will increase your capacity to experience and share his love, right? That whole Proverbs thing where it says, I will fill your barns and your vats will be overflowing. That is a principle that is true for us as it was for them. 
As you move in response to grace and move into gratitude and generosity, God will increase your capacity for generosity and increase your capacity to experience the blessings he's already given you. He'll increase your capacity for joy and for love. You guys, there's something very, very beautiful here. And we miss it. Because we get distracted by the temporary comfort, the illusion of security, the distraction of pleasure. You guys, we need to be a people shaped by the gospel in this area, just like Solomon's son did. Because if we're going to be a wise people, money isn't some secular thing. It's spiritual. How are we going to honor God with our wealth? All right, I'm going to put some uh, reflection questions on the screen. I'm going to ask you to pray and let God speak to you in this. Um, I want to remind you we have worship response cards in our bulletin. Fill those out. Let us know you were here. We'd love to know it. If you have prayer requests, put those on there. We'd love to pray with you and for you. Um, If you want to meet with somebody, if you want to complain about the sermon, let me know. Uh, I'll be happy to sit down over a cup of coffee and tell you um, how I love you and you're wrong. Um, Graciously. Um, (laughs) But let me pray for us, um, and then we'll just post the reflection questions. We'll share communion in a moment. We pray. Father God, I thank you that you are a God of grace. Man, we don't like to talk about money, and we definitely don't like it when pastors start talking about money. Um, Makes us nervous. With good reason, Lord, we have abused the teaching of your word. We have sanctified our greed with spiritual sounding talk. Lord, we, we don't want to do that, but we don't want to miss the blessing that's embedded here either. We want to be a generous people. We want to be a people deeply moved and changed by grace. We want to be a people so free that we own our possessions and they don't own us. That we can use these things to glorify you instead of use them to insulate us from you. Lord, I'm asking you to do what you can only do shape this church, shape our hearts to be a people of genuine generosity because we have tasted deeply of grace. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.